With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hey, I hope everyone is having a beautiful Thanksgiving. This episode is a rebroadcast of one of our favorites, Mac Davis with Mini Circle. It's a company pursuing immortality. And Mac actually came down to LA a couple days ago from Austin to raise some money here and also take a shower at my place. So I felt it was fitting to tell his story again today. So we're going to start with part two. Uh, if you haven't heard part one, definitely go check it out. But we do a little bit of catch up in the beginning. So take a listen. Oh, and also we have a portfolio. Puerto Rico series coming up next week. So I'm really excited for that. With that, I'll hand it over to Mac. When I was a kid, I fell in love with this girl. And then she revealed to me that she had an incurable genetic disease and there's nothing that anybody could do. So when I was 14, the concept that came to me that I wanted to commit my life to was immortality. I was moving to Austin when a FedEx tractor trailer carrying 2,000 gallons of liquid glue hit my bus from behind on the interstate. Both of the vehicles rolled over into the forest and exploded. Everybody that saw the accident couldn't believe that I survived. This isn't an easy story for Mac to tell. It's probably the most traumatic experience of his life. And you can hear there are points in that story where Mac's voice chokes up as these memories seep back into the present. This story takes us back to this theme of fear. Mac has been combating fear since he was a child, and each traumatic experience seems to bring him closer to an inner peace. This trauma is no exception. I decided to make it worth it. To use this near-death experience to sort of supercharge my life. It made me even less afraid of death and in a certain way just all things. I don't know. Before the accident, Mac was already prepared to metamorphosize. But after emerging from the chrysalis to discover the entire forest had burned down around him, Mac doubled down on these commitments. Mac was trying to get back to his baseline. And once there, he'd have to move on. I was so exhausted. I was in pain all the time because of the injuries that I got. My my neck and my back and my feet were all like, you know, torn up on the inside. So after the accident, like I would, I would try to walk to the bus stop and it was like a five minute walk and just like 10 minutes of walking, I was exhausted. I had to go home and lay in bed. Um, it was weird. At that point, had your Bitcoin money run out? Well, I lost a lot of it in the bus. Um, I had, uh, uh, many terabytes of hard drives and, uh, they were all destroyed. We couldn't save any of them. So you lost all your keys. I lost a lot of my keys, yeah. Um, well, all I had was 3D printing and uh, the ability to advise on cryptocurrency investments. So I had some, some friends that eventually got into crypto. They were like pharmaceutical executives and tech executives. And they asked me to tell them what to do with their money. I was building 3D printers and either selling them. I, I, I went to a middle school and taught a 3D printing summer camp. Just a lot of weird stuff. I mean... You're just like trying to get your footing again, it seems like. Yeah, I was just taking up anything that I could. And I was not making a lot of money. 
While he was at the forefront of seemingly burgeoning technologies, they didn't quite pan out as expected. But this phase was just one of experimentation, and after dabbling in a few areas, he eventually refocused on a path that would prove rewarding. Like, I, I started college as a physics major, but over time, after talking with all the physics professors, I found out that physics was not the thing to be doing right now. It was very trendy in 1900, but after the bomb got made, physicists were like, oh my god, what are we doing? Like, we just gave nuclear weapons to these guys. Uh, anyway, I went to like a microbiology conference. And in physics, there were only men. And at the microbiology conference, it was mostly women. And I was like, this is cool. There's a science where there's mostly women. I like that. That combined with just like having a pulse on global technology development, like it really seemed like biotechnology was the most potent, hottest thing to do in this, in this era. I was really fascinated by the wonderful world of pharmaceuticals and how life can be improved with chemistry and genes. It's kind of like the old philosopher's stone story. Where, you know, the alchemists back in the Middle Ages they were looking for this magical chemical reaction that could just make your life better. Mm. You know, that could grant immortality, or they, they wanted to turn lead into gold. And I've, I feel like we're, you know, there's a modern day search for these things. And you could be on like the cutting edge of that search. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And I had this background in hacking, but the market was very saturated. Like back then, everyone was like, learn programming and a lot of people I knew were programmers mm. and I just felt like that skill was already everybody had it it was like normal so that made me completely uninterested in doing it on the other hand biohacking I didn't know anybody that was a biohacker and it sounded really cool doing genetic modification at home the art of creatively questioning fundamental assumptions that people have about the limitations of biology using experiments and demonstrations. Like, I'm gonna do this thing that I bet you thought was totally impossible. But it just happened. Like, night vision eye drops was, was the first big example we had of that, in my opinion, where these guys on the internet they found this chemical that was uh, found in algae and in the eyes of deep sea fish. And this is this chemical is what deep sea fish used to see at the bottom of the ocean where there's no light. They bought some from a scientific supply store and drifted in their eyes, and it, <laughs> and it worked. The peak of the night vision eye drops experiment was when I went to the Atacama Desert in Chile the driest, most desolate desert in the world with the darkest sky. Surrounded by mountains so that all of the clouds just like get caught. There's only clouds three days a year. You can see more stars there than you can anywhere else in the world on land. And I, uh, I did a few rounds of these night vision eye drops one night a hundred kilometers from the nearest village and I saw more than twice as many stars, and I just had one of the most satisfying spiritual experiences of my life. Mac was enthralled by the new world he discovered. Given his predisposition to technologies that involve computers, it may have seemed natural for him to have followed a career in computer science. But in the scientific field, Computer scientists had quickly become as plentiful as rabbits. 
Microbiologists, by comparison, were a rare unicorn. And much like the blood of unicorns, Mac was convinced that this field would be sure to produce a new wave of solutions for the problems that plague the human body. He wanted to exceed the limits of what was conceived to be humanly possible. However, like any pioneer, Mac faced pushback to many of his more revolutionary ideas. So he turned his attention to searching for stepping stones on the path to insurgency. Small, bite-sized samples of biological alterations that wouldn't immediately frighten the masses. So was that whole project what really convinced you that this was was something that you could pursue more in depth? It was the project that I chose to do. It was both interesting to me and it got the most feedback from other people. Uh, most of my ideas before I thought were really cool, but knew and could tell that nobody else understood what I was even talking about. Or they were like, that sounds scary. But with Night Vision Eye Drops, pretty much everybody was like, that sounds <laughs> really cool. And some people were like, can I try those right now? So for the first time, like I had this route to doing something that I felt like society was interested in. Yeah, you had this positive feedback. Yeah, I got, that posi what you I were got doing. positive feedback. That was new for me. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times I was always searching for something that would work with society that people actually wanted. But like, what, isn't there this whole mission to like explore things that are outside of society and create something? I know, right? So like, why? Why did you want that feedback from society? Like, why did you like, because it seems like you got mainstream support yeah. and that was like the positive right. feedback that maybe you hadn't gotten before. But probably the reason that you hadn't got before is because you were like, like, fuck society. <laughs> like, let yeah. me do whatever the hell I want outside of it. Let me create this parallel mm -hmm. economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're too good at this. You're, you're very good. I think a good example I could bring up is like WikiLeaks. These are the images that made whistleblowing website WikiLeaks a household name. In 2010, it published classified U.S. Army material implicating the U.S. government in possible war crimes. It made Julian Assange a brave defender of the truth to some and an enemy of the state to others. Julian Assange, he created a, a website. He was following his ideals. He made a big impact on global politics, and he's having a really hard time because of it. He's been under essentially house arrest in a country that he's not from for like seven or eight years, and I really believe in that type of standing up to the man, you know, and really living according to your values. But I also don't want to be killed or go to jail, especially not for life i don't i don't accept martyrdom it's not a valid outcome life is too beautiful to become a martyr uh i want to have kids just throwing that out there <laughs> um can't have kids if i'm dead yeah. and uh, i like that i really value that i want to see the stars i want to see the sun i want to see my kids i want to see other people's kids you know life is the value and uh, i'm pretty committed to that the immortality yeah While he knew he could transform society with his ideas and experiments, Mac shies away from many of his more revolutionary tendencies in the realm of biotechnologies. He rejects the idea of martyrdom because life is the reward. He wants to witness the fruits of his labor. He wants to see the next generation. Don't get me wrong. He wants to create a revolution, but sustainably. And to create this revolution, Mac first needed to create a community. Biohack Austin, exclamation mark, was the meetup that I created in Austin. And we, we had this spot meeting at the coolest bookstore at the center of Austin. And we could do that for free every week or two. After a few months of these meetups, some of the members decided that we needed to start a lab because that's what biohackers did. They, they had labs and they did biohacking in them. I was like, okay, that sounds great. I mean, it was definitely how I wanted to spend my time. 
We uh, created spirulina bioreactors. Um, we did research into antioxidants, and one of the people there who was on the board had this dissolvable magnesium patch that you could put on your skin, and it would reduce inflammation locally, and it actually worked. That was cool. By creating these biohacking meetups, Mac finally found an outlet for his ideas. Not only were his peers interested in biohacking, they shared other interests that are critical aspects of Mac's core identity. This group defied the staunch scientist-atheist archetype and enjoyed engaging in conversations about religion and spirituality. They also shared Mac's desire to operate outside of typical institutions. With these values clearly established, the group set to work creating their own lab. And while Mac found value in what they were working on, it wasn't until he met Tristan that he would discover his next groundbreaking passion project. I ended up going to this thing called Exosphere. It was a residential camp where people would live together for two months. I ended up meeting Tristan there. And one day in the community circle, he revealed to the group that he had HIV and that his insurance just got cut and that he wouldn't be able to pay for his medication and that he was uh, not sure what to do and that he felt like there was something wrong with this. And immediately, this guy who had a, a hardcore capitalist podcast is just like immediately responds, like the world owes you nothing. Don't expect help. This was, it was like, it was pretty shocking. So Tristan and I, we just wanted to do some kind of radical project that would address the availability of particularly HIV drugs in America. Uh, this was a time when I thought that we could 3D print drugs or make like kits that would allow you to make your own HIV medication so that you would not be dependent on a a single pharmaceutical company that can set the price. So we wanted to, we, we wanted to give people more essentially individual freedom and sovereignty over what they needed to live. Once again, Mac highlights his desire to work outside of traditional institutions. He saw the ramifications of a flawed healthcare system and the pain that Tristan endured trying to get assistance from the established channels. These trials furthered Mac's determination to find medical solutions that were affordable for the masses. He saw the injustices laid bare by these establishments and knew that he needed to revolutionize the process of creating and distributing medicines. And concerning the capitalist guy who so brutally declared that the world owes Tristan nothing, he just spoke the brutal truths that exist within a capitalist healthcare system. Mac aspires to overthrow this system, to create a world in which no one needlessly suffers from pain nor financial hardship caused by outrageously priced medication. To become a true American, must each of us face financial ruin as an initiation rite? Mac aims to break away from this mold, and this is how he and Tristan turned to developing a radical cure for HIV. We really hit it off, and we wanted to do some type of radical underground anarchist activism project in order to uh, address the issue of the availability and pricing of HIV medication in the United States and the world. You know, we, we were looking at all kinds of ideas. We were looking at 3D printing these uh, medications. We were looking at making kits that people could buy or just an open source design where you could safely make these things in your kitchen. We didn't find the idea that clearly would work. Mm. And a couple years passed and I'm on this trip to go see the total solar eclipse. I think it was the end of August 2017. And uh, I am talking to Tristan. This paper comes out from the NIH saying that the first HIV broadly neutralizing antibody was discovered. And uh, so I was like, okay, maybe we should create a way for people to grow these antibodies at home. 
And then I met Josiah Zaner uh, for the second or third time, and he's telling me about how, you know, he's been injecting these plasmids and how, you know, most people, I was like, but plas plasmids don't work. And he was like, actually, they do. They work a little bit, and uh, DNA is so cheap, you can just inject a ton of it, and you can get a higher effect. And I was like, whoa, that kind of blows my mind. Uh, are you saying that it could be easy to genetically modify yourself, maybe even to produce this antibody that could cure or treat HIV? So, you know, I brought this up to Tristan, and Tristan was like, allow me to introduce you to our biohacker team. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, so if you haven't already, you should totally subscribe to the podcast you're listening to right now. It's called Finding Founders, and it's awesome. At least my roommate Christian thinks so. Hey, Christian. Yeah. Do you like Finding Founders? Oh, my God. Cool. <laughs> as much as I cherish Christian listening, I feel like Finding Founders needs to reach a broader audience, and I'm pretty sure it would do well as a movie. So I called it the last blockbuster in existence all the way in Bend, Oregon, and asked, hey, uh, have you heard of Finding Founders? Sorry, is this uh, is this the Ben Oregon blockbuster? Yeah. You, you guys like are like the last blockbuster in existence, right? Yeah, we are. How is it like working there? Um, I mean, it can get slow sometimes, but uh, we stay pretty busy. So I learned that this guy's name was Zantana. And at this point, you might think, hey, you didn't ask him about Finding Founders. And also, Sam, calling the last vestige of an obsolete franchise kind of sounds morose. It makes me question my own mortality and ask the big questions like, why are we here? What does this mean? But then you think, no, I can survive. If this lone blockbuster in the middle of Bend, Oregon has survived in the midst of its brethren perishing, maybe I can laugh in the face of death. Or at least that's what Zantana does. I don't know. It's, it's, I feel like it's almost like reverent being the last in existence. Kind of cool. Well, I mean, I worked here before. It was uh, the last one. That one closed down about two years ago. Did you feel like, ha, and we got him. Like, we're still around. We beat him. Yeah. Um, not a lot of us thought we were going to outlive them, but we somehow just came out on top. Okay, maybe Santana is more level-headed and less existential about outliving the rest of his competition. But let's get back on track. Eventually, I did ask him about this Finding Founders movie. Do you guys have the movie Finding Founders? No, we do not. Have you heard of Finding Founders? Uh, no, I have not. It, it's, it's based on this podcast that like interviews entrepreneurs. It's pretty cool. All right. Uh, I mean, is it a show? Well, it's a show. You can like find it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, or wherever you get your podcasts. But... um. You should check out the podcast if you get a chance. Yeah, for sure. As you can hear, Zantana seemed pretty hyped about listening to Finding Founders, and you should be pretty hyped too. So make sure you subscribe. But actually, I think I want to take this relationship to the next level. I kind of want to just like talk to you, the, the person listening, uh, and hear what you think about what the heck you're listening to and Finding Founders in general. Uh, so let's set up a time to chat. Email me at sam at findingfounders.co. That's .co. And uh, I'll respond. I, I'll respond to every email. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, and I look forward to hearing from you. Now, back to the podcast. A bunch of other people had the same idea. And uh, he introduced me to Aaron Trawick. And uh, Aaron Trawick was this like passionate, incredibly creative entrepreneur. He was from Alabama, the deep south, middle of nowhere Alabama. He was, uh, he had greasy hair because he never washed his hair, he only used coconut oil. During his graduation, he wore no shoes, and he he had two outfits he wore. There was a white suit and a, and a dark gray suit, and that was all I ever saw him wear. He was the most fearless person I've ever met, possibly to an unhealthy degree. He was able to do things and make deals with people that I couldn't believe. 
he he had an extra hundred thousand dollars that he had just made from doing platelet-rich plasma clinical trials in Colorado, which he imported from Greece, and he had a project to do. Uh, medical tourism to Cuba because the Cuban government invented the first lung cancer vaccine, um, but it's illegal in the U.S. Mm. Uh, so he had a project to like bring people to Cuba and to help translate everything because they speak Spanish. And uh, he was just like, "Yeah, we're going to Africa. I'm talking to the health minister of uh, Rwanda and Swaziland and." Uh, they really need an HIV treatment, and uh, they're interested in what we're making. He was the first person that I met that really believed in us biohackers. He believed that we would produce everything that we thought was scientifically, theoretically, maybe possible. He, he was sure that it would just happen if we had the money and the time. And so he gave this team of biohackers, of which I was uh, one on the team, about $100,000 in basically somewhere between a grant and a contract, just like start working on this. And if it works, we're gonna sell it. That was how it started, you know? Aaron's arrival signaled a change. Mac had been bouncing around like a vagabond for much of his life. Up until this point, Mac had purpose, but not focus. But Aaron, Aaron had the intensity to make things happen. His gregarious nature seemed to make everything fall magically into place. What's more is Aaron actually believed in this ragtag ensemble of biohackers. And he was willing to fuel this dream not only with his passion, but with his money. Aaron made the incredibly risky move to invest $100,000 to develop an idea that was purely theoretical by a group of loosely coupled biohackers that really had no idea what they were doing. What was it like working with him? Because it seemed like you, Tristan, mm -hmm. and Aaron were like this trio, this like three musketeers type that you kind guys of, did I mean, a lot together. When Ascendance started, uh, there's probably like eight people on the team. Over time, we discovered that the concept that had been created and developed by the other people on the team was not scalable at all. I didn't want to believe it because we thought we knew what we were doing. Yeah. We thought we had a plan. We, you know, the, the, the contract was for a pretty small amount of money and we said it would take a pretty short amount of time. And in the research, we found out that it just was not gonna work. You know, Aaron was breathing down our necks and we were like not wanting to ask for more money because we didn't do what we said, but also what we said we were gonna do that they told us to do wasn't gonna work. Like, as Aaron had less and less money and was increasingly concerned and he was going into debt, he became very micromanaging and um, people had an increasingly difficult time working with him. He couldn't pay any of us. Uh, some people got pissed. When you don't have money, I, I have seen multiple times people just start getting at each other's throats because there's not enough to go around. Mac's team was shocked. The concept they had spent all their time and money on, it wasn't possible. This realization destroyed morale for many of the team members. But to Mac, this result was expected. He understands that the scientific method is a process of testing a hypothesis. In this case, they had disproved their hypothesis to an extent. However, Aaron saw the situation differently. He saw his investment whittling away. And he was going to do everything he could to ensure that it didn't happen. To Aaron, this was a situation of life or death. His livelihood depended on it. As Aaron lost money and patience, the company began to unravel. Their working conditions steadily grew more tense. The tension was a tangible force rippling throughout the company. Aaron had placed all he had into this gamble, and now he was losing control. He was lashing out, looking to grasp hold of any opportunity. But the tighter he held onto the horns, the more the bull tried to buck him off. Aaron became increasingly unhinged. Each new trial threatened to send him flying. 
things aren't working out. Things are not working out. So Aaron wanted to immediately sell to everybody whatever we made as soon as it worked. And we became very concerned that that might not be a good idea. That even though the things that we were working on would probably cure or treat a disease, that the society that we were living in and the regulatory authorities that were put in place by the society might not like it. They might have a bad reaction. The FDA might say, you guys should not be doing this and we're going to come and arrest you. So Aaron was not afraid of this at all. He was ready to be a martyr. He was ready to be the guy that would show that these biohackers outside the institution actually created these extremely valuable things and then they got shut down by the FDA. Look who's wrong. Look who's in the moral wrong. There were three documentaries following us around. Anything we did might be potentially incriminating. So there's this combination, this storm of like the research not working out, Aaron running out of money, like us being increasingly concerned that what Aaron was going to do with this powerful technology would not turn out ideally for us and a lot of people and for like the space. And he was starting to like become unhinged, like the screws holding his mind together were starting to fall out. Things were quickly spinning out of control for the Ascendance team. Sure, the team might have had small wins, but these wins had to operate within a regulatory framework, which Aaron impatiently disregarded. When I hear Mac describe Aaron, I can't help but think of Timothy Leary. Leary advocated for a mass spreading of LSD in the 60s, despite warnings that he was going too far. He failed to keep in mind the context under which he was operating. During the 60s and 70s, there was a mass pushback against hallucinogens hailing from the highest offices in the land. Nixon even referred to Leary as the most dangerous man in America. Who is Timothy Leary? I'm a philosopher. I'm a psychologist who uh, has been studying the nervous system for the last uh, 30 years. I've written 10 books and hundreds of articles. Uh, you also happen to be a person in prison. Well, uh, yes, I'm in prison, and uh, that may seem odd, uh, a philosopher in prison, but uh, I have to say this about And Leary paid the price by spending much of his life in and out of 36 different jails, and arguably setting back the study of hallucinogens for generations. Sure, this might not be a mind-altering drug, but existing communities and governments typically reject this brand of disruption. These small revolutions threatened to disturb the natural order of society. Aaron saw the revolutionary technology the biohackers had stumbled across and was as desperate as Leary to spread the news of his findings. He operated under this philosophical purity to spread the good news rather than the practicality required so as not to startle the incumbent institutions. He saw the value of DNA and didn't want to let go. DNA is more potent than LSD. It's more valuable per gram than platinum. Everything you've ever experienced, felt, heard, seen, thought is this virtual reality that is running on top of a genetic biocomputer. And what if you could upgrade your avatar? What if you could inject experiences that other people have had because like everybody's born with a different metabolic framework and it's deeply in the core of what you feel your personality is like some people are born with big muscles some people are born with diseases a lot of these things are genetic and what if you could change your experience what if you could change your identity who really are you if you could change those things the one thing that you've never been able to change is your genome. Every biological entity has been completely powerless to change its own genome. Until now. 
all throughout history, there have been discovered incredibly transformative technologies. Every once in a while, people find this incredibly powerful light source, whether it's electricity or language or fire or, you know, antibiotics. And uh, it's always up to them what to do with it. It's not actually up to whoever the authorities are at the time and place because they didn't make it. It's the creator who can give it to somebody else or like teach somebody else how to make fire. And uh, seemingly the one of the biggest challenges is how to frame it so that it's actually accepted and liked because it can totally change your life. No matter how well I try to frame this, it might start a brush fire anyway. Like people might just go off to the races. I want to pitch a narrative of safety and respect. I want to set an example if possible, especially if it's the first one. I think that's that sets a good tone. Kind of like how uh, the polio vaccine, I remember Jonas Salk, he made it free and said that this is this is the heritage of the world. This is like, this is for everybody and everything for the rest of time. It seems like you were trying to package it in a way that was going to be consumable by the masses. And Aaron was like, put it out there and let people decide. I, I feel really committed to making sure that everybody can benefit from this and uh, that it isn't presented in a way that gets shut down. It's more important for people to benefit from it than for it to be like cool. Channeling a modern day Prometheus, Mac was committed to creating something that benefited everyone, just as the gift of fire did. But Prometheus's story didn't have a happy ending for the protagonist. If Aaron wasn't careful, the transgression of our basic biological programming could lead to the same fate as Prometheus chained to a rock with eagles feasting on his lover. Mac was trying to keep his fire safe. While he succeeded in sparking momentum and a burning passion within the biohacking community, he couldn't save one of his most adamant supporters from the flames. As a decidedly steady individual, Mac could contain the constant infighting in Aaron's erratic nature. However, nothing could have prepared him for what happened next. Thank you. Uh, my name is Aaron Trawicks. We have been developing a vaccine. And a There's cure. a lot of infighting in ascendance. He had just injected an experimental herpes vaccine in front of a crowd in Austin at Body Hacking Con. The social reaction was extremely terrible. Hundreds of different outlets, and they all tore him to shreds. The other people in my organization were like, this is crazy. Like the FDA or the DEA or was going to come in and either bust down the door or bring some guy with a clipboard and look at how safe our lab was and shut us down. You know, I, I really don't think that he ever internally necessarily wanted to make it about him. And he just like put himself up on stage being vulnerable and doing what he believed was right that he knew other people had disagreements with. And... I remember this meeting we went to in March, I think, in Austin, and we sat down with this guy, and the guy immediately, first thing to Aaron, says, everyone I know is telling me not to work with you. Why should I listen to anything you have to say? And Aaron got mad, and he just fired back. That was his world after that herpes vaccine injection. So he was under an incredible amount of psychological stress. He was out of money. And everyone knew about what he did, and everyone hated it in the media. There's also an, an, an argument that he did not have informed consent because he did not have a scientific background, per se. He was, he was the entrepreneur that threw the money down and wanted the scientists to do the work. He understood it in an abstract kind of service level way. And sometimes he said things that sounded totally crazy. But that's why he was the publicity guy. Then we find out that he's turned up data. His official cause of death was drowning in like one and a half feet of water in a float spa, a sensory deprivation tank in Washington, D.C. Every single person I knew that I told this to was like, that story sounds made up. 
like this guy was in the most reported biohacking story of the year in every major news outlet and uh, he's talking about releasing these gene therapies to people without going through regulatory processes and then he turns up dead in a like a foot and a half of water in washington dc really we were in this radical project together and uh, this guy just turns up dead who's next we were a little bit scared where there is revolution death all too often is lurking in the shadows and while it is technically possible to drown in as little as two inches of water something about the events surrounding aaron's death seems suspicious whether there was foul play involved or aaron's mental state had deteriorated enough to push him to take his own life it seemed to be more than an unfortunate accident the optics of a bombastic technologist that threatened to uproot powerful institutions and big pharma turning up dead in a faulty sensory deprivation chamber seem almost as suspicious as Jeffrey Epstein somehow managing to hang himself. The suspect conditions of Aaron's death led to a rampant fear rippling throughout the company. Mac already felt he had to guard himself against forces that were trying to remove him from his own lab, and now he had to deal with the increasing paranoia that someone was trying to remove him from the universe entirely and permanently. However, as more time passed without any further incident, the neurosis dissipated and Mac explained away the ambiguity. Emotionally, what was that like? It almost seems like the uncertainty behind the death muted the immensity of what happened. In a way, yeah, I mean... I think that ha that was true before I went to the funeral. Also, before Aaron died, I never met any of his friends. I didn't even know if he had a family. You know, he didn't talk about them. And then when I met his family, it was like, wow, okay, this was a real person. Aaron's death weirdly allowed Mac to understand him more. Mac only knew the professional side of Aaron, and that side was magnanimous and mysterious in a way that was kind of dehumanizing. I think attending the funeral transformed Aaron from an enigma into a person. Yes, there were still parts of his life that remained mysterious, but Mac had some closure. Now he had to move on and reassemble the broken company that Aaron left in his wake. After the funeral, we basically had to pick up pieces and uh, do it ourselves. We, we kept doing the research. We developed scalable methods for production. We went to LA and raised funding and decided to begin this as a startup. So basically my partner Walter had uh, some dreams and uh, in these dreams, which were about DNA and like enzymes and proteins, he came out with two ways that were more scalable and we tried them out and all of them worked for production. And so we had something, we had a scalable method of production for these gene therapy vectors that was cheap and could be distributed. Plasmids are very cheap to make at scale. And we created a plasmid that produced, or it expressed for a long time in the human body. Like a phoenix rising from the ashes, Mac used the tragedy of Aaron's death as a catalyst to completely transform his company, building it from the ground up. He remained devoted to his mission of creating a product that would improve the lives of everyday people. So we were operating with the assumption for a while that this would be like kind of an underground thing that people weren't ready for this. But the more people that we shared the ideas with, everybody was like, dude, that should, everybody wants that and it should be an FDA approved drug that w might actually work. So we eventually went over to that side. So the full statin gene therapy increases muscle mass. In animals, it doubles it, it doubles bone density, and it halves the body fat. The cardiovascular system is rapidly improved, and, uh, and the animals live longer, and they're healthier. We've seen some very interesting effects. Well, the first time that Walter, my, the science officer, tried it, he got a little bit taller. I think that growth spurt was a little bit out of the ordinary. I would be suspicious that his back muscles might have gotten stronger and been able to hold him up a little bit straighter. And his chest also just broadened out. That was the first injection. He had to buy new shirts. It was weird. He doesn't exercise at all. And he eats McDonald's. 
that kind of thing. So that was our first like result. And we, we had the blood test to prove that his full statin level tripled in his blood for 200 days. So that's what we started the company based on. While most people find the idea of altering their bodies in this manner terrifying, Mac's confidence in his technology combined with his drive to confront the unknown resulted in a fearlessness that propelled his decision to use himself as his main test subject. He wanted to be intimately involved in the development process. Mac's injection has the potential to solve the disconnect between human biology and the fast-paced technology-driven world of today. Previously, evolution allowed life to remain on track with the changes in the environment. But in modern years, human lifestyle has changed so rapidly that our biology hasn't been able to keep up. We have produced technologies that have rapidly exceeded the pace of evolution, and these technologies are exponentially increasing in both intelligence and productivity capabilities. With the impending invention of superintelligent computers, many may fear that the human race itself will be left behind. Mac's desire is to find an effective way to intentionally tweak the wheel of our genome, allowing humans to continue to amass some semblance of a competitive advantage. That is the intended purpose behind his company, Minicircle. So I was pretty deeply embedded in the biohacker community. I knew most people in the U.S. And there's this other guy, Elliot Roth, who I'd been friends with them for many years and got connected to this lab incubator called Mothership in downtown Los Angeles. So I was like, hey, Elliot, I know you're trying to genetically modify spirulina. We do that kind of stuff. Why don't we come over and help you sequence the species that you're working with so that you can start using CRISPR on it and looking for the things that you want to knock out. So we went over there for a week and generated some rapport. We had a reason to be there. And Walter worked on the science and got it all done and it worked. I met with all of the other people and made friends and pitched their idea. They loved the idea. I loved what they were doing. Rob was like, you should move to LA and make this a company. Mac made valuable connections. By consistently offering help to his peers and by continually expanding his network over the years, Mac spun the perfect web of people that could help him make his next entrepreneurial move. He had little time to lie in wait before pouncing on his next opportunity. So he easily enticed the perfect people to join in and jumpstart his company. So he calls me up one night and says that he was having drinks with uh, Sam Altman at a bar and Sam is like, hey, you're in biotech. What are some of the most interesting startups that you've come across? And he tells Sam about Minicircle and Sam was instantly like, uh, I want to invest 500k. Can you connect me? And uh, we got connected. We ended up taking half the money. It, it worked out and we've been burning through that cash uh, ever since. Mac finally amassed the resources he needed to successfully run his company. Not only that, but he finally had investors who not only trusted him, but also had a deep understanding of the scientific process. With the equipment and capital to back him, Mac doubled down on his research, prepared to embark on new journeys into the unknown. In this new environment, Mac immediately began to see success. When you get out of those weeds and kind of look at what you're creating from a more like humanitarian perspective, yeah. what does this mean to you? I just want to contribute to a more beautiful and just world. I want the glorious benefits of gene therapy to be available and affordable. The entire pharmacy, big pharma system right now is centered around making extremely expensive drugs for extremely rare diseases that very few people have. I want to make affordable drugs for diseases that everybody has. And we're not all born with a privileged psychological system. I think that there are a lot of mental illnesses that are disregarded because we supposedly don't have any treatment for them. I would really like to see a world with people that are more comfortable with themselves, more comfortable with their identity, and more free. I think the potential of the mini-circle technology is radically transformative and beneficial for everyone on Earth. The keys to immortality... We've already discovered some of them. Our choice is just whether or not to try it out and not be hampered by fear and regulation completely. Looking forward, Mac is excited to push the boundaries of science and healthcare. Never one to conform to traditional boundaries and boxes, Mac is also looking outside of biohacking's potential to improve the human body alone. 
He sees the potential of gene therapy to alter the state of our minds in an age where so many struggle with mental health. Most importantly, he wants to improve human lives in an affordable, autonomous way. He's never become blindsided by profit. His devotion to mission and curiosity remain as pure as ever. From his early life, Mac had firmly established these morals and values and refused to compromise them. He thinks that all entrepreneurs could benefit from this kind of commitment. Something I'm big on is commitment to purpose and substance. There are so many things that you could do with your life that might get you some money for a little bit of time or a long time. But entrepreneurs morally should exist in order to produce value and distribute it to as many people as possible who want to receive the benefits of that value. They're not morally here to suck money from unsuspecting investors or unsuspecting clients. You need to save people time and money and enhance their life and earn the value that is accumulated. I think one of the most important things a successful entrepreneur has to have is just like ability and the desire to go hard all the time, even when you don't have money and even when it's not working out and just keep going. And sometimes you need to start where you are and maybe you don't have the perfect idea, but you'll learn things along the way. The journey of life, if you ask it to, will gradually bring you closer and closer to the things that are deeply your purpose. It's clear to me that Mac views himself as somewhat of an outcast. He operates outside of traditional channels and pays little attention to governing his actions to fit some narrow social norm. Having defeated fear in his dreams as a young boy, Mac was ready to tackle Frankenstein's creature or any other alien science experiment head on. He wouldn't be swayed by pitchfork-wielding crowds. He would keep working on what he believed in. Mac's ultimate goal is to improve the society he toes the outskirts of. He believes that the clear solution to many of society's woes is to increase individual autonomy. He wishes to create a world in which we can find, develop, and build our own cures outside of traditional institutions or governments. Mac feels profoundly connected to the purpose he has to fulfill, and he's discovered this purpose in biohacking. Through a thorough development of his values and morals, Mac has built a strong compass that has guided him throughout an intense journey to the newest frontier of biological research. And something that Mac has taught me about values and morals is you need to define them. You need to cultivate them. You need to experience them in your day-to-day -day life. So I pose a question to you. What are your values and morals? Think about it. It's important. Also, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. See you next week.